A quick content warning. Based on feedback we've gotten from our listeners, we know that you guys like a heads up if we're going to be discussing suicide or suicide methods or research into suicide. And this case does have some of that. So listener discretion is advised. On December 4, 2005, a 30-year-old Swedish woman named Annie Buryason was found on the seashore in Prestwick, Scotland. Annie had moved to Scotland for new experiences and fell in love with the country. Leading up to her death, she seemed worried about a situation, though no one is sure what the issue was. After investigators ruled her death a probable suicide, Annie's mother, Guya, and best friend, Maria, started a campaign to have a full investigation done as they believe Annie was murdered. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me tonight is Allie. How are you, Allie? I am slowly melting. It's nearly 40 degrees or 104 degrees in here. Yeah, very, very hot. And for those who listen to Patreon, how is your toothache holding up? Uh, My toothache, I will get through this recording session. That is my goal. And um, hopefully get into the dentist very quickly. And everyone can have a drink because I mentioned the weather. (laughs) And if anyone is curious about our Patreon episodes, we have more up there. Every month we put up a mini episode that are getting less mini as we go. We put up a audio article which covers a case that wouldn't fit our episodes for whatever reason. It's not the same type of true crime we usually do, or it's way too short, that sort of thing. And then we also have a documentary talk, and we just recorded our talk on the documentary Beware the Slenderman. And we add things that we research that adds to the documentary or what is framed within the documentary. So if you go out to Patreon, we have a couple months of content up there, and it's going to keep coming. Three new things every month. But let's go ahead and get started with our topic for tonight. We're talking about the death of Annie Buryason, and I apologize to every Swedish person listening. I'm guessing that's how we say her last name. I, I practiced, I promise. Annie was born in Sweden, and she grew up adventurous and outgoing as a child, She was the type who told stories while waving her arms around and getting louder as she went. I'm the same type of person. I hit my microphone pretty much every recording from waving my arms around. This is the kind of person Annie was, big personality. She loved to perform. She was a singer and a bass guitarist with a band when she was in her 20s. She was friendly. She loved to learn. In addition to speaking her native Swedish, she also spoke English, Finnish, Spanish. She spoke some French, and because her father was from Hungary, she also spoke Hungarian. On the other side of things, Annie has been described as a little naive. She was a trustworthy person, and she just seemed to assume the best of other people, and that's very common for good people. That Good people who've had happy lives, they kind of assume the best from other people. She was also fiercely independent, and I get the impression that she's one of those people who assumed that between her own intelligence and her hard work, things were just going to work out for her in life. At age 29, Annie decided to move to Scotland to work on her English and have the adventure of living in another country. 
She first settled in the fall of 2004 and began studying English at Aspect ILA in Edinburgh. She lived at Linton Court Apartments where she rented a room and had a shared kitchen and bathroom with flatmates. She didn't know these flatmates prior to moving in. In February 2005, she was given a scholarship to the Scotch Whiskey Heritage Centre. I did try to figure out what this means. It's now called the Scotch Whiskey Experience. It's a tourist location and people go there to learn more about Scotch whisky and sample some and take tours. I'm not sure what a scholarship to this would mean. I did look it up and couldn't find anything. So if anyone listens, knows more about this, let us know. It does sound more like an internship, though, to be honest. Annie worked as a street entertainer. She loved to perform and be in front of people. She honestly did sound like such a happy and carefree person. She would have been perfect to work in this tourist spot because she did speak all of those languages. But regardless, the scholarship or internship ended in August of 2005, and then she returned to Sweden. But staying in Sweden wasn't really what Annie wanted. She loved her year in Scotland, and she was eager to go back. She was drawing unemployment benefits in Sweden, and this gave her both the time and the money that she needed to return to Scotland and take some time looking for work. Most of the applications she put in were at hotels, and hospitality really sounds like something Annie would have been good at from what we've learned about her through our research. That personality that's never met a stranger And her love of meeting people from all over the globe is, I mean, really perfect for front desk type work at a hotel. By late October 2005, Annie was back in Edinburgh, but she wasn't having a lot of luck on the job front. She spent the next few weeks looking for work and spending her spare time exploring the city and really just getting to know the area better. So now we're going to walk through the timeline of events leading up to her death. But there are a lot of questions in these events. Some of the events are a mystery by themselves, and it's not clear if they're related to her death or even if they are at all. So let's just dive into it. At some point in late November, possibly within a week of her death, she was at a nightclub called Mood when she met a man who told her he was Martin Leslie, who was a rugby player. Annie was a huge rugby fan and even hung out at a nearby rugby club. Martin Leslie was from New Zealand, but he played international rugby for Scotland. So it's likely Annie would recognize the name. But it's also possible she wouldn't recognize Martin Leslie on site, since at that time he wasn't currently playing for Scotland. But I guess it's also possible this man had a passable resemblance to him, so she believed him. All we really know is that Annie thought she met Martin that night, but she most certainly did not. He wasn't even in the country at this time. He had already moved back to his native New Zealand two years previous to this. Fake Martin kept offering Annie champagne, but she turned him down. She wasn't a complete teetotaler, but she wasn't much of a drinker either. They talked for a while that night, reportedly for several hours, and then she went home. Now, Annie was a swimmer, and there was a local place she would go to to do laps. 
Between the time she met fake Martin and her death, he showed up unexpectedly at the pool. She seemed uncomfortable with him at this point, even though she did seem quite taken with him at the club. I do have to wonder if she only mentioned the pool in passing, or possibly she didn't mention it at all, which makes it even more creepy he showed up. But we don't know much more about fake Martin or if the police ever identified who he really was. Then on November 27th, Annie spoke with her best friend Maria for about an hour and Maria called again on December 1st. She said Annie sounded fine to her. Annie also paid her rent for December. She had taken out a membership for her local leisure centre because she wanted to swim more. But Annie's brother did have an odd conversation with Annie at some point around this time where she asked him if people could be tracked by their computers. One of the other women who lived at the apartments with Annie said that Annie was depressed or upset over a man, though we don't really know of any boyfriend in her life. But seeing as the call with her brother may have lined up with this fake Martin showing up at her pool, I must wonder if she was worried that she was being stalked by him because that would fit with the timeline. She also made a vague statement to another roommate that she had something she needed to take care of, which might fit the idea of a stalker if she meant she needed to figure out how to be safe. But then she also said she had a decision to make that might change her life. Now, that doesn't necessarily fit a stalker being the primary concern if we're thinking that's what was weighing on her, but no one seems to have any idea what she meant. She was 30 years old, single, adventurous. Maybe she was going back to school or moving to another country or taking a job that was outside of her comfort zone. It really could be anything, but those who know her can't think of anything she mentioned that would fit this life-changing decision. So then we're at December 2nd, and this was a Friday. She went to the Scotch Whiskey Heritage Center to say hi to her friend who was named Kat. Kat worked there. They met while they were both working there. And it was around 5.30 in the evening. And even though the visit wasn't pre-planned, Kat said Annie was her normal self until about 6.15 when she got a phone call from her mother, Guya. Kat said that Annie's demeanor immediately changed. Now, Guya was worried because Annie's brother and father had both mentioned to her that they were worried about Annie because of odd conversations they had had with her where she didn't seem like herself. So Guya was just calling to touch base and check in. Guya's memory of the call is that Annie said she couldn't talk because she was with her friend. Guya told her that the family was worried because Annie didn't seem like herself. She did seem a bit down and asked what was going on. Annie said that she had to take care of herself. Guya asked her to call in the next day or so just to check in and Annie said, we'll see about that. Now this conversation happened in Swedish, so it's possible the meaning of this last sentence was lost in translation. Now, we'll see about that is a common English phrase that's a bit aggressive and basically saying that this event is unlikely going to happen. It really doesn't fit in this particular conversation. It's possible Annie said something more to the equivalent of we'll see as in maybe. Honestly, though, it could be that she was intending on going home. Maybe it was going to be a surprise visit, which makes sense with what's to come. 
And that makes her comments a little less strange because she wouldn't be calling because she was going to see her family. But as what was meant when she said she had to take care of herself, well, I can see that as being an adult, it could mean just spreading my wings. Annie lived at home when she was in Sweden. Maybe she was just letting her family know that they needed to give her some space and whatever was going on was well within her ability to handle it. Her family and friends would later report that Annie's behaviour leading up to her death was a bit odd. Nothing that stood out to them at the time, but in hindsight, they said it was odd. I don't know if anything can be read into that. I'm sure if nothing happened, they wouldn't have given any of this a passing thought. It's just because something did happen that this was a standout conversation. I mean, it really is only because we know Annie died days later that any of this seems that important. And I do wonder if maybe we, as in the armchair sleuths, are putting too much weight onto these things. Lots of people say this sort of thing to their parents. We do know that Annie was struggling with a situation. She was facing a big decision. But it's also possible neither of those things had anything to do with what came next. I bet a lot of you listening right now, you're struggling with a situation and you have a big decision to make. Doesn't mean you're in danger. There is one last phone call later that night where she had this odd conversation with her mom It would have been after she hung up with Guya, but before 8 p.m. Annie had talked to another friend who was living in Sweden and told her that she was heading out to a party. The party was going to start about 10, but she didn't really give any other details. And as far as we can tell from the website the family maintains and any press we found, it doesn't seem like the family or anyone else really found out what this party was about. It's interesting, though, because you would think that if Annie did go to a party or if someone saw her at the party and then heard about what happened to her, then at least one person would have come forward. We really know nothing about this party. It's interesting how we know very little about Annie's life in Edinburgh. So we need to get to the timeline for Saturday, December 3rd. And it started out confusing to investigators because Annie apparently tried to withdraw money from an ATM at the Glasgow Central Station. At the same time, she was seen on CCTV 32 miles away at the Presswick Airport. So this was cleared up when they realized that her card transaction processed the time in Swedish time because that's where her bank account was, and that's an hour ahead. So there's actually an hour difference here. So that made that make a little bit more sense, but it doesn't actually clear up all of the issues with the timeline because one of Annie's flatmates saw her at the apartment at 1.30. So if she was at Glasgow Central Station at 2.15 to use the ATM, she had managed a 65-minute trip in 45 minutes. Now it's possible her friend had the time wrong, but it's also possible Annie took this trip by car instead of public transportation, and the person sped or just, I mean, honestly, just usually takes less time going by car, but no one's come forward to say that they had given her a ride anywhere. Anyway, times we can verify are time-stamped ones like ATM transactions and CCTV footage, so we'll stick with those. At 2.15 in the afternoon, she was at an ATM at Glasgow Central Station, and that's a railway station for those who don't know. Annie took trains everywhere, so it made sense that she would be there. 
But at the ATM, she first tried to take out £100, but the transaction was denied due to insufficient funds. She did try again for £50 and was denied again for the same reason. Even though her bank account wasn't looking too healthy, she did have a £300 cheque that she either hadn't picked up or hadn't deposited yet. So there was money in her immediate future. It just wasn't accessible to her at that very moment. Without taking out any money, Annie left Glasgow Central and she was next seen an hour later at Presswick International Airport. CCTV footage catches her crossing the bridge from the railway station to the airport and she's smoking the entire time. It looks like she got on the train shortly after attempting to take the money out and took it to the airport. But no CCTV footage has been found or at least released that Annie was ever seen on the train just walking on this footbridge. Her family has asked about this and has pointed out this is missing in interviews, so it's significant that they cannot confirm that Annie wasn't getting around by car. And since she didn't have a car, this would mean someone was driving her around this last day of her life. Now, Presswick isn't just a random destination for Annie. She knew this journey well. Whenever she wanted to fly back to Sweden, she'd go to this airport and catch the flight home. This was a journey she took many, many times. So based on that, it does appear like she may have been trying to get home to Sweden. She did have a hair appointment in Sweden scheduled for Monday, so it does make sense. Annie had this long, very thick hair. Her hair was down to her waist and it was her pride and joy. She only allowed one person to even trim it and that was her stylist back home. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Fashion is my world. I am at my happiest when I can take a random pile of clothes and turn it into a look that feels like it's off the runway at Fashion Week. But even though that's what I love to do, I don't really have the experience to make it my full-time career yet. That's why I started my own fashion blog with Squarespace. With their gorgeous templates and -and drag-and-drop tools, it took me no time at all to create a blog that feels representative of who I am. I can showcase photos of my work, share my resume, and connect each post to my social media to hopefully turn my passion into my career. Take the next step to bring your passions to life. Go to squarespace.com passion for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code passion to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com passion and use offer code passion. There was a flight to Gothenburg scheduled to leave Prestwick at 6.30 that evening. And Prestwick, like we said, this is the one that Annie usually used, but she didn't have a ticket. It's possible she planned on purchasing one at the airport, maybe even flying out standby. There was also a flight out the next morning and... Like most airports, Prestwick has a number of hotels nearby she could have stayed at or, you know, she could have spent the night in the airport. In my younger and poorer days, I had to do this when I had an early morning flight. So anyway, in the CCTV footage, Annie is seen with her hair pulled back into a ponytail. She's wearing her winter jacket and under that she's wearing what looks to me like a red shirt I've seen it described that she's wearing a red and white fleece, but I can't personally see that much detail in the image that's widely available online. It may be visible in another image. The family knows about this particular fleece jacket because 
It's something that she had bought in Sweden. The brand name was Weather Report. To me, it just looks like a red shirt. She's wearing normal long pants and sneakers or trainers, as they say in the UK. My Midwestern kids call them tennis shoes. And she's carrying a bag over her shoulder. It's bigger than a purse, so to me it appears to be the size of a weekend bag. From what has been described, the CCTV footage shows Annie enter the airport, take the escalator to the concourse, and then exit on the far side into the parking lot. Journalist Kenneth Roy of the Scottish Review later tried to reenact this at the same time of the day with a woman about Annie's size and athletic abilities while carrying a bag. It took her a minute and 32 seconds if standing on the escalator. If walking down the escalator, it took her 1 minute 20 seconds, so 12 seconds less. But according to the timestamps on the CCTV, Annie did this in 55 seconds. Now, there are two explanations to this. One is that the timestamp on one side or the other was off by 20 or 30 seconds. The other is that Annie ran a portion of this, which would open the question of what she was running to or what she was running from or who for that matter. If she was at the airport hoping to get a ticket for a flight, she wasn't in the airport long enough to do this. Even though she didn't have any money in her bank account, she did often carry cash. So had she spent 5, 10, 15 minutes in the airport, we could say she at least inquired at the ticketing counter about the flights. But she didn't really spend enough time there to even look at the arrival or departure boards. Annie was in the parking area for about three minutes before CCTV catches her re-entering the airport. And police theorized that she may have been out there trying to find another ATM, though there wasn't one out there. So after failing to take money out in Glasgow, I don't know why they think she was going to try to have better luck at Prestwick anyway. I don't understand this thinking. And since Annie had been at this airport many, many times before, I think she would know this. She would know that the ATMs were on the inside and not the outside of the building in a random car park. I think it makes more sense to say that she went outside for some air or possibly a cigarette. She'd been on a train for quite a while before that. That makes more sense to me. And when she is re-entering the airport, her mother and best friend both say the same thing, that Annie looks ticked off, possibly just annoyed, but definitely not happy. Annie then walked through the airport and left. She was there for less than five minutes total. So it was a two and a half hour by public transportation trip to get from her home to the airport for her to stay there for less than five minutes. So it seems possible that she thought she was going to find someone or something in that parking lot and didn't. So she left annoyed, but we have no idea what she could have been looking for. I don't think the ATM explanation makes a whole lot of sense. At 4.05, someone who may have been Annie is seen on CCTV walking along Station Road in the direction of the Firth of Clyde. And that's a body of water on the coast of Prestwick. Annie's family would later state that Annie would never go into Prestwick Town. That wasn't something she would normally do. If this was her, this leaves quite a gap in time. If she left the airport around 3.20, it took 45 minutes to only get about a mile away. We'd have to assume she stopped somewhere along the way. 
And there is a question on this identification as well. The footage is poor quality. The person was a similar height and build to Annie and the person in the footage is carrying a bag similar in size to what Annie was carrying. But that really is all that can be identified. Police say it's her, but her family says that it's not. It is odd to her family that she would have walked this path and not be picked up by any other CCTV cameras in the area. The next maybe sighting of Annie may have been at 4.30 at the beach. Two men walking on the promenade about a mile and a half from the airport saw someone standing out by the shore. This person was staring out to the sea. When they had turned back to walk home about 20 minutes later, this person was still there and they hadn't moved. One of the men said to the other they wondered if the person was contemplating suicide, but then they didn't think much more of it. It wouldn't be until he saw the beach cordoned off the next day that it stuck out to this man and he mentioned it to the police officer what he saw. Another witness claims to have seen Annie or someone similar to her speaking with two men at the beach in the same time frame. Now, these stories don't line up entirely, so we have a couple possibilities. If both of these people were Annie, one is that the two men who reported seeing her did speak to her and for some reason didn't share that information. The other is that two other men spoke with her while she was out of the line of sight of the original two men. But we're also left with the possibility that one or both of these people just simply were not Annie. With the sun setting and at the distance she or whoever that was was seen at, the original two men couldn't even be sure they were looking at a woman, let alone identify that woman. They also did not notice the person holding or carrying a bag. It seems investigators really felt this sighting was Annie staring out at the water, but her family feels this is far from certain. Then we have a several-hour gap until 8.23 in the morning the next day, December 4th, when a dog walker found Annie's body lying under the seawall. It would be later determined that she had drowned and her body had washed up there. Next to her body was her coat and her bag. The red and white fleece jacket that her family said was on the CCTV footage was not found. This a bit about the jacket and the bag washing up near her body immediately baffles me. If Annie had left her jacket and bag on the shore, it's a bizarre coincidence that her body would wash up right next to them. But if she had them with her, how did they end up off of her body and also then happen to wash up right next to her? It seemed to neatly put everything together for the police. I can see why they thought this when everything was put together. But in reality, they had no reason to so quickly put this together as they did. There was really nothing that pointed out that the person on the beach was Annie. It may not have even been female, it might have been a man, but all the sightings fit together, so in the eyes of the police, there was no other explanation. It had to be her. The autopsy was conducted in Scotland, and it really is an interesting read, but the medical examiner ruled her death a drowning. Her body and hair was muddy and sandy and had seaweed on it. Her lungs were full of fluid and there was a frothy substance. 
She had pale depressions on her forehead and nose, which was noted on the autopsy report as maybe the result of the body lying on something when it was found. But the thing was that Annie wasn't lying on anything when she was found. She was lying on her back. So what were these pale marks on her face? Annie had no bruising or abnormalities on her genital region, meaning that she was unlikely, but not definite, but unlikely to have been raped and assaulted. Both her lungs did have small hemorrhages and there was some bruising on her body, but nothing that was unusual with drowning being the cause of death. The toxicology screening would show that Annie had a small amount of alcohol in her system, 0.02, so most likely just one drink on the day of her death. There was no drugs found in her system. They also didn't take any samples of the water in her lungs to determine if the water came from fresh water or salt water. They just said that she drowned in salt water. And this lack of testing will come up again a bit later. Annie's family doesn't necessarily disagree with the cause of death, just the manner. The autopsy ruled that Annie had drowned in an act of suicide, but her family believes 100% that this was a homicide. It was actually interesting how quickly the investigators ruled out that possibility that it could have been foul play. The day after she was found, the newspapers were reporting that there was no suspicious circumstances surrounding Annie's death. On December 16th, Annie's body was sent to Sweden where her family arranged a second autopsy and there were three very important things discovered here. The first is that Annie's long hair had been cut off and not cut off well either, more hacked off unevenly. The only explanation given was that her hair was caked with mud and seaweed so an undertaker in Scotland opted for her hair to be cut so it would be more presentable. Annie's family does not accept this because they consulted with a number of funeral directors who all said they absolutely never would have done such a thing. They would have washed the hair the best they could and then if that wasn't sufficient enough they would have spoken to the family about it. Annie's family felt, and maybe they still do, that her hair may have been cut off by someone who killed her. It's possible they've accepted that it was just the actions of an inept employee of the funeral staff. Unfortunately, the autopsy only states that her hair was long, so we don't necessarily know if her hair was waist length when found. Her family was told that four to five centimetres of her hair had been cut, And that's only about an inch and a half to two inches. So with waist length hair, it's hard to imagine that the family would have noticed this to the point of being shocked if that's all the hair that was missing. So it makes you wonder who cut off the rest of the hair. The second alarming thing that they found was bruising. On the Scottish side of things, it was determined that any injuries Annie had could be explained by being in the water and coming in contact with debris. But in Sweden, they said no, that the bruising was not consistent with this, and it also wasn't consistent with lividity. These were mostly large bruises to Annie's right side, both her arm, her torso, and her head. And the third thing that was odd was that a sample of Annie's bone marrow was sent to a professor in Strasbourg, and he found tiny algae in the sample, except the algae he found were freshwater algae, not saltwater. 
A test of the water where she was found showed that this type of algae was not found there. This has led many to believe Annie has drowned in fresh water and then dumped in the sea. Except two other experts looking at this information say they don't know when the algae entered Annie's body. It could have happened prior to the drowning. Additional tests on samples of Annie's organs would be needed to make this determination, but they were refused by the Swedish authorities without explanation. Not allowing for further testing has made the family all the more suspicious of some sort of cover-up. But to me, more interesting than the saltwater algae in her system that could have gotten there at any time, Guya has said that there was no saltwater algae in her system. If she had drowned and ingested that much seawater, there would have been something, you would think. There are a few other odd pieces that may mean something, or they could be nothing at all, but they do stand out. In Annie's bag was her passport and library books from Sweden that were due to be returned. So this definitely backs up this idea that she was planning to head home. At her apartment, there were things missing that also showed she was heading out of town. Clothing items, her makeup, her toothbrush, her toothpaste. But here's the weird thing. None of those items were in her bag. So was there a second bag with some of her clothing and toiletry items in it? And if so, where's that bag? Now, another missing item was her Filofax organizer, and according to Annie's family and friends, she never went anywhere without it. Not only did she use it for addresses and phone numbers, it was also her travel journal, and she recorded her impressions of where she went and what she was doing in it. She certainly wouldn't have traveled all the way home without it. If we follow the ruling by death by suicide, I think it could be argued that she disposed of her Filofax herself. I'm not sure I want my inner thoughts read after my death, and considering everything went into this file of facts, this does make sense. But if we're following the theory she was murdered, the missing file of facts does fit. If this was a robbery gone wrong situation, the thief would have stolen this hoping to find cash or cards. If this was someone who knew her well, they may have been afraid that they would be listed in there. Annie's family decided to look into Annie's death themselves, and the missing Filofax alarmed them because it was their link to who she spent time with in Scotland. They still wanted to figure out who Annie was in contact with in the days leading up to her death, so they decided to check her emails. Annie and her mother Guya were very close, and Guya had her passwords for various accounts so she was able to quickly gain access to Annie's Hotmail account. But she hit a brick wall when she found the entire thing cleared. Every incoming and sent email had been deleted. I think with Annie asking her brother about tracking people through the computer, it's possible or even likely she deleted all of these herself. If she was afraid of being stalked but didn't really understand how tracing people online works, she could have been clumsily trying to erase her digital footprint. It's also possible that this was just what Annie normally did, and being a type A personality, it wouldn't be that much of a stretch. It wouldn't shock me that since she was carrying around this file of facts everywhere that maybe she did delete her emails after she replied or read them. 
The second way they tried to track Annie's contacts was through her phone records, but these showed that she didn't call or receive calls for three days prior to her death. Maria Guya and Annie's friend Kat at the Scotch Whiskey Heritage Center all know that this is not true. She had been on the phone, international calls at that, in those days, yet none of them showed up. When Maria tried to get in touch with Annie's cell phone carrier to figure out why these weren't showing up and why they weren't being billed for, they wouldn't speak to her about the account. So with missing emails and phone records, the family and friends of Annie were growing more suspicious of some type of cover-up, but this would be a pretty big cover-up because this isn't just so much that they can't accept that their loved one's death was ruled a suicide wrongly, but someone was going to great lengths to cover it up by getting into private phone records and altering them. I am possibly reaching here, but maybe for some of those phone calls, the lack of records for them could have been because Annie used a payphone or another phone that wasn't her own. I know in my research that payphones can be sometimes cheaper to call internationally rather than on a cell phone. But that couldn't explain all of these calls. It's beyond strange. So this cover-up theory is where another person kind of enters this, and that's Christina Borgeson. Christina is an American journalist whose name is very close to Annie's. It doesn't sound like it, but Annie's full name is Annie Christina Borgeson. Now, Annie and Christina both spell Christina the same way with the K, And even though their surnames are pronounced differently, even though I'm apparently having trouble saying both of them, they're spelled nearly identically. The only difference is that Annie spells hers with the umlaut over that first O. The idea behind this is that Annie was killed because someone mistook her for Christina. And it's going to take us a minute to explain why Christina would be in danger of being murdered to begin with. So Christina Borgeson is considered something of a whistleblower. When she was working for CBS News, she was reporting on the TWA 800 explosion. And the more she dug, the more she challenged the official finding. For those not up to date on your major airplane disasters, TWA 800 took off from JFK Airport in New York on July 17, 1996. The flight was headed to Paris for a layover before continuing on to Rome. Twelve minutes into the flight, the plane exploded over the ocean. It was difficult to determine the cause of the explosion, and it took a four-year investigation before it was determined that the probable cause was an explosion of fuel vapours in the central fuel time, which was likely ignited by a short circuit from the plane's wiring. This was not a definitive answer, and the incident has been the source of many conspiracy theories. Thinking Sideways podcast had an entire episode on TWA Flight 800, so we do recommend you listen to that if you want to go further down the rabbit hole on this. But the short version is that early on in the investigation, investigators did come out and said that there were three theories, a bomb, a missile or mechanical failure. Witnesses saw what they thought was a missile, and the conspiracy theories are split between a missile being a terrorist act or coming from the U.S. Navy, either on accident or on purpose. 
So back to Christina Borgeson. She made some waves by not just supporting the idea that the true story behind TWA 800 was being covered up, but also by publishing works challenging the United States media. She brought up some really interesting points about how the media was influenced by the government and perhaps were sometimes too willing to believe the government line. At some point after Annie's death, her friend Maria read something about Christina doing an investigation at Prestwick Airport about a new topic, the U.S. Extraordinary Rendition Missions, and that they were going through Prestwick. And this name obviously stood out to her since it was so close to Annie's and, of course, the connection to Prestwick Airport. That's the last place Annie was confirmed to have been. Extraordinary renditions, for those who are unfamiliar, are when the U.S. takes a suspected terrorist into custody, whether arresting or maybe considered abducting this person. They will transport them to a country that allows interrogation techniques that are forbidden by the U.S. So basically, I'm talking about torture. Now, extraordinary renditions are not just some crackpot conspiracy theory. They actually happen. They've happened hundreds of times This is a known practice, but the European Parliament and the European Council of Human Rights have spoken out against this practice and against European countries who allow these planes to stop in their countries even just for refueling. In searching for any work Christina has done on this, I've only found references back to Annie's death and not the actual investigation, so I'm not sure where this went. The idea here is that Annie got flagged when she went through Prestwick on her way back to Scotland weeks before her death. Someone mistook her for Christina and essentially a hit was put on her. Either she was lured back to the airport or seen when she was there and then was murdered to keep her from telling about the rendition missions. Something that makes Maria think she may be onto something here is that after she emailed someone about the possible Christina connection, she started getting hang-up phone calls and had trouble logging onto online accounts. It seemed to her like a possible connection. While anyone could have wiped Annie's emails, it would have had to have been a government agency to intervene to wipe the phone records, unless what we're talking about here is simply a massive glitch. There are a few holes in this theory. If the CIA or MI5 or 6 or whatever government agency was involved, you would think that they would be aware what Christina looks like. She's hardly been in hiding. She's always had a public face. You can YouTube her right now. You will find her. She is 20 years older than Annie, and every image I've seen of her, her hair is no longer than shoulder length. Usually it's like a bob. She doesn't even bear a passing resemblance to Annie. The only way for them to know that Annie was at Prestwick was if they were surveilling her, which would have been visually or maybe just by flagging her credit cards and public transportation usage. But if they were doing this, then they would have had to have known she wasn't an American journalist in her 50s. Now, the other major hole in this theory is that the actual Christina Borgeson is still alive 13 years later. So if the information she had was that important to quash, this was a major fail. Putting aside the government hit theory for a bit, we have this gap in the timeline that baffles me. 
Assuming the 405 blurry CCTV footage that the police believe was Annie really was her, we have 16 hours that are largely unaccounted for. At some point, we can assume Annie had a drink based on her blood alcohol content. Maybe this happened shortly after leaving the airport. On the website her family maintained, they said unknown DNA was found on Annie's hands, which you wouldn't expect if she had been in the water long. And that really illustrates the point that we don't know what time Annie went into the water or how long she was in the water for. It does only take minutes to drown, so we really have no idea. This time gap is large and means we don't even know which day Annie went into the water, on the evening of the 3rd or in the early morning hours of the 4th. Her family has said not having this piece of information has been painful to them because they don't even know which day to hold a memorial. That isn't something I would have even thought about, but I can see how these small unknowns can just be added pain for families. Okay, so basically, if we're going to talk theories in this case, we have three, accident, suicide, or homicide. The accident theory seems unlikely in this situation, even though it's the most statistically likely since most drowning deaths are accidental deaths. But Annie was a strong swimmer, and the water at this location wasn't very deep, even if she walked pretty far out. And I'm not sure what the undertow is like out there, but come on, this is December in the North Atlantic. She wasn't likely going out for a swim in all of her clothes or waiting out there for fun. She would have had to have gone into the water unconscious for this to be an accident and also happened to drop her bag and also somehow get her coat off. There's no explanation for her suddenly losing consciousness and falling into the water. Now, the official ruling is that it was a probable suicide, which her family says is impossible. They acknowledge that Annie was struggling with something in Scotland, and they didn't know what, but she had plans to be in Sweden within days. She had paid her rent for the month, and she had future plans. These things that we believe make it so that it's unlikely someone was going to commit suicide. But we need to look into the role of impulsiveness in suicides. And I'll be honest, the research on this is conflicting, but there is a New England Journal of Medicine study that had some interesting statistics in it. Obviously, we can only ask people who survived their suicide attempts. And of those included in this particular study, 24% of those who made a near-lethal suicide attempt had made the decision less than five minutes before the attempt. 70% had made the decision within the hour. But people often have suicidal ideation or depression ahead of an impulsive suicide attempt. But we also know people can hide these things, particularly if they live away from their closest friends and family. But if Annie was hiding these things, her suicidal tendencies, the depth of her depression, she hid them very well. For this episode, we read a study that looked at 20 years of suicides by drowning, and it was noted that all of the instances they saw involved people with current or past mental health issues and or suicidal attempts or ideolations. Annie did not fit this, well, as far as we can tell anyway. This study is somewhat limited, though, because it was in Texas where people have easy access to guns, so suicide by drowning numbers would be lower, and so this sample size was pretty small. 
It was fewer than 60 deaths in 20 years. I'm sure if this study was done in Sweden or even in Australia, they may have gotten a vastly different result. But that same study showed something else that I thought was interesting, so I'll interject it here. I always imagined that survival instinct would kick in as the person began to go under. I would expect most people who chose this path would either be intoxicated or would have weights on them to prevent themselves from stopping the process. But as it turns out, most people are sober and do not weigh themselves down. So the lack of these things doesn't point away from suicide. There is another possibility that Annie was experiencing a mental break and experiencing paranoia due to it. Her family was concerned about her in part due to her fears of being tracked through internet use. Her movements through the airport don't make a lot of sense to us, but there had to have been something happening there. Perhaps what was happening was something related to paranoia. But what Annie's family believes happened was that this was a homicide. Annie's actions at the airport might make sense if she was meant to meet someone, possibly in the parking lot. She made it across the airport very quickly, so maybe she was running to the car park because she was running late meeting this person. Then she left the parking lot when the person wasn't there. But what if this person picked her up outside the airport where no one saw Like we said, the family does not believe the later CCTV footage to be Annie or that the person staring out to sea was likely her. So what if she actually didn't leave the airport on foot? And of course, another option would be a robbery gone wrong, particularly with the missing filofax. So the murder theory would also mean that Annie did not drown in that sea. She was drowned elsewhere and then dumped to make it look like she drowned in the sea. And there are a few points that favor this a bit. One was that Annie was found up by the seawall where the tide doesn't often reach. And it would have not been a common place for her to wash up that far. She did not have the saltwater algae in her system as far as we know, and you would expect that. She was also found with items close by, even though you would think maybe they would have drifted apart if they were put into the water. And then, of course, Annie didn't have that red and white fleece that her family saw in the CCTV footage, and it has never been found. They believe that this shows that she took off her coat and that jacket somewhere prior to her death, and if she took them off before going into the water herself, why would the jacket have drifted away but the coat and the bag did not? It's been stated that she was found on her back and most drowning victims are found face down. So we'll clear that up. That's not actually true. She was found on her back, but that's not uncommon. That doesn't rule out this being a drowning. And honestly, guys, we've done way more reading on drowning deaths than we ever wanted to for this episode. And I'm surprised we haven't given ourselves nightmares. But that is something that you will see going around as proof. And it simply isn't. Annie's family is really asking for a larger investigation to be done. They want someone to analyse the currents and tides along that coast to see if the coat and bag washing up with her body is likely or not. It may very well be a likely outcome, but we don't know because this wasn't done. They want more details about what was found in her autopsy as far as evidence of not just drowning, but specifically drowning in the Firth. They want more of her known contacts in Scotland to be interviewed. 
It's something that's come up in this show before. If a death is presumed a suicide from the start, the investigation sometimes steers only in that direction that confirms that very point. If a death investigation starts as a homicide investigation, they can always walk backwards from that. But how many of Annie's friends in Scotland are even in the area or remember details from so long ago? Her room has probably been rented to 10 or more people in that time period, so searching that is no longer an option. Another concern the family has is that they cannot get the records of the investigation. The records have been determined to not be in the public interest to release. Now, in the U.S., we have things go a little bit differently. If a case is closed, like Annie's is, you can often get the entire case file. And it's really hard for families to hire private investigators or to use some type of outside resource to do a case review when they can't get these records. I've talked to families who have purposely had their loved one's case closed so that they could get these records so that they could have a review. But in Scotland, apparently, that doesn't mean you can get the records. Personally, I believe families should have a right to a private case review if they want it, particularly if the case is closed and the police are not investigating it. Honestly, I believe she went to the airport because she was going home. Everything points in that direction. Maybe she thought she had cashed the check or maybe it would have cleared. And when it didn't, she just went to the beach to clear her head and work out what she was going to do. What happened there, I don't know. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe she did suicide. Maybe she came across the wrong person. But then again, there is very little evidence that anyone did kill her. Her behaviour leading up to her death, in hindsight, was strange. As I said earlier, if nothing happened, it may not have been. But the issue was something did happen. Another issue I have is with the police. They never considered it to be more than a suicide, and that's a shame because there could have been something there to give the family some closure either way. I really wish the family could get this case file because I think... It would probably clear up some of their questions, and it's really unfortunate that they're not getting that. So something somewhat unusual happened in Scotland. On that seawall where Annie was found, a plaque was hung up that said, Annie Buryason, born 7 February 1975, found dead 4 December 2005. Her loved ones never found out how or why a blot on Scotland's reputation for fairness. Her family was sent a picture of the plaque. They have no idea who put it up there. They were at first touched to see it. Guya and Maria have said that on their various trips to Scotland trying to get answers and find justice for Annie, they've been just filled with support from the Scottish citizens they've encountered. They also want this to be investigated. But then after it kind of settled for a little bit, Gooey actually wondered if maybe the plaque was a taunt. I mean, why else wouldn't they tell her who did it? It could have been a taunt from someone who does know what happened. It was taunting the police a little bit. If anyone does have information pertaining to Annie's death, her life in Scotland, or anything else that may be important to understanding what happened to her, the family asks that you email them directly at info at annierockstar.com. 
Thank you for listening. You can find us on Facebook at Insight Podcast, Twitter at Insightful Pod, Instagram at Insight Pod, or email us at insightfulpod at gmail.com. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash insightpod. And a special thank you to Chesgrave Music for our new custom theme.